Well, the 2022 midterm elections are now over, kind of, for the most part. Kind of, for the most part, is a pretty good way of putting it. We definitely have a few things that we're not going to know for at least a little while, but we do have some things we did learn this week, which are pretty interesting. Georgia is going to make us wait for a month, and the House results will probably take a couple more days. But we think that we have enough that we do know to bring an episode that will be productive and insightful to you this week. Regular listeners of Indubitably are probably aware that we typically publish our episodes on Sundays, but due to the circumstances of this election, we had to we had to push it out a little bit. But if you haven't listened, we did leave you with a throwback episode to Elon Musk versus Twitter, which is definitely current once again, assuming at the time of this release, Twitter is still a thing. We have a couple of things happening this week that update minute by minute, but hopefully the things we can talk about based on the 2022 midterm elections are going to still be the case for at least a little while longer. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. All right, so... 2022 U.S. midterm elections, with what we know, maybe it would be good to start by talking about what was at stake. Did this election even matter? Spoiler alert, I don't think so. To answer your first question, what was at stake in this election were 435 House seats, which is every single representative in the United States, 35 Senate seats, which is only roughly a third of them, and 36 governor seats, which is well over half. And even though it was only 35 Senate seats, it definitely put control of the Senate up for grabs. So being one third is is certainly impactful just in terms of who's going to get to have the Senate. In addition to the actual representative positions, there were plenty of state propositions which were highly interesting this year, including ones regarding abortion, gun control, drugs, and slavery. We, we're we voting on slavery? Yeah, I think we should talk about that a little bit more down down further in the episode, but it's, it's a weird year. Make sure to stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear about slavery in a midterm election. <laughs> so my second question, though, did this election matter? We know what seats were up to be voted on, but do these results one way or another, are they actually going to make a difference? It seems like this midterm election, as opposed to a lot of other midterm elections, had a lot of things at stake, which weren't previously, particularly those uh, state propositions we're talking about. But the overall tenor of the election also speaks to the level of importance that it might have nationally for future elections. I think most pundits We're not super thrilled with Biden's performance so far and not super thrilled with the state of the country, uh, specifically economically, which we'll talk about in a bit. And based on those had predicted a red wave, the Republicans were going to take over the House and the Senate. There were some polls that indicated that might be the case, too, which may speak to polling being incapable of keeping up with how people actually think and feel when it comes to voting decisions. I've never been polled. 
uh, for an election. I think most people who get polled are older and have landlines. And I'm getting older, but I don't have a landline. Whatever the reason for these pollsters being incapable of doing their jobs, like the weatherman, don't get me started on the weather here last week, they were very wrong about this red wave. And now Democrats were calling it a red trickle. But it wasn't substantially liberal leaning to the point where it was a blue wave. In fact, we haven't really had a blue wave as may have been previously assumed either. Yeah, just two years ago, those same pundits were saying this time there's going to be this huge blue wave, I think, on the uh, coattails of, of Trump's performance as president. And that one didn't happen either. So no waves anywhere, just a whole bunch of trickles. Do you think that's the state of American politics from now forward? Is that just a phenomenon of the last couple of years? Or is it getting harder and harder for parties to capture districts from the other side? It would appear that at least the Democrats had some success in capturing districts from the other side in this particular election. but because there's still enough that needs to be reclaimed that they could not. It didn't appear as substantial, perhaps, as it might have in other circumstances. I don't know if we're ever going to get to a point in this country where we have like a clear, overwhelming preference as a nation. It seems to have a moderating effect that we're basically arguing over like 2% in most of these elections. I think that the moderates in the country as a group are probably shrinking. As the two parties seem to be getting more and more extreme, moving away from each other, it's kind of hard to not have a preference for one or the other. 14, 15 years ago, the Republicans, the Democrats probably resembled each other a lot more than they do now. And that's more conducive to having the undecided vote in play in the election. I, I don't think there is much of an undecided vote anymore. There was a concern, I guess, amongst conservatives that there were kind of two factions within the Republican Party, kind of the old guard, Reaganite type of Republican, and then the new Trump era Republican. And that could potentially cause some division and even perhaps a splitting into two separate parties. But it seems that that division has sort of resolved. And for the most part, the Trump Republican is kind of the Republican now. Mm. I don't know if that's true. And we'll talk about that definitely later when we get into some specific results. Uh, but speaking of presidents, I think the other thing that supposedly mattered about this election was the question of would Biden be able over the next two years to push forward his agendas with a Congress that supported him? Or would the Republicans be able to block efforts of Biden to, to push forward more? liberal agendas. And with what we know so far, it's kind of a yes and no. <laughs> it's not really clear one way or the other what's going to happen with Biden's policies, considering what we're actually looking at with the composition of the Senate and the House of Representatives. So that was the reason that this election was supposed to have mattered. It was either Biden gets a mandate from the people and the legislative ability to push forward his agenda, or Republicans would be able to basically block any efforts he might make for the next two years uh, and in hopes of regaining the presidency in 2024. Realistically, I don't think Biden's going to do anything either way. So I don't think this election matters much, but that's just me. I think that Joe Biden is a little bit more of a political strategist than you do. I 
believe he's quite aware that putting forth really bold legislation is not an effective use of his time when he does not have clear majorities and filibuster-proof majorities in the Senate in particular. So he's putting forth policies that are a little bit more milquetoast because they have a better chance of actually getting through and succeeding. And then they don't have to waste their time trying to push something in a futile effort. Uh, Yeah, but then what we get is his pretty pathetic student loan debt forgiveness program. And I mean, I don't know if if that's what he considers a win. I don't think this election matters one way or another. I'd say that people would prefer that than nothing. Yeah, I, I, he could have passed more, though. Bernie would have passed more. That's all I'm going to say. If they would had enough support in the legislature, perhaps. But I think this is the best we can do with the way things look right now. Maybe if he wasn't a coward. Biden aside, <laughs> what did people care about? in this election. There's some interesting analysis here. Exit polling shows that the top issues for this particular cycle were A, inflation at 32%, B, abortion at 27%, C, gun policy at 12%, tied with crime. Does that make them both C or both D? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) C slash D, gun policy and crime. And E, Number five would be immigration at 10%. It's interesting that four of those five topics mentioned are divisive, meaning there are people who sit on either side of them and are at the center of a lot of controversy. Whereas inflation, I don't know too many people who are pro-inflation. So that might have been a great uniting factor over the American electorate. It's also interesting because uh, I think this is where the prediction of the red wave was coming. Let's be real. None of us know how the economy works. So when the issues we're voting on are economic issues, the economy is going good. We're basically like, let's just keep it how it is. When the economy is going bad, we're basically let's get that guy out or let's get that party out. And if inflation, which is obviously horrible right now, is the number one concern for people in this election, it would seem to suggest that they'd be looking to take out the incumbent party and find a little bit of change in hopes of solving this problem. But that didn't happen. That is surprising. There is usually a push towards the more conservative end of the spectrum when the economy is doing poorly. I wonder what happened this time. Well, so if inflation was the biggest concern, and abortion number two, which we'll talk about later, I suppose that would be a reason for why this election mattered. If we got it right, quote unquote, then hopefully we'll start seeing inflation go down over the next, who knows, six-month year. I'm tired of paying this for gas. I think we also need to acknowledge that the inflation issue extends beyond American borders, that basically every country is experiencing it, and often at a much higher rate than America is. So this election probably won't have too much of an impact on how much you're paying at the grocery store, but it does have a lot of impact on a few of the other topics that were pretty important to the people on this poll. Mm -hmm. And I guess the last reason that this election mattered is the implications for presidency in 2024, which we will talk about also later in the episode. So instead of continuously previewing what we will be talking about, why don't we go through each category that was being voted on for the rest of the episode, discuss big picture results, and then specific races that might be interesting, 
and then potential ramifications. Sound good? Yep, sounds good. Why don't we start then with the Senate? Currently, pre-election, the Senate makeup was 48 Democratic senators, two independent senators who caucus with the Democrats, giving them functionally 50, and that was versus 50 Republicans. So the Senate was a tie, and for those that aren't familiar, in the event of a tie, the tiebreaker goes to the vice president, Kamala Harris, who most likely would vote with the Democrats. Bold of you to assume that. <laughs> my, my political pundency record is strong. <laughs> what ended up happening is a very minor difference from what we're currently looking at for the composition, but potentially a pretty impactful difference. Right. The independents are out, first of all. Womp womp. Back to two-party system. My hopes and dreams for democracy out the window. So we have 50 legitimate Democratic candidates that have been confirmed, or at least major news companies are comfortable projecting their victories. So 50 Democrats, 49 Republicans, and Georgia, who we are not going to know about until December when they hold their runoff election. Until at least December. It's possible this could, <laughs> this could go on for a while. True. Uh, but worst case scenario for Democrats, though, they will be still in the situation of having a 50-50 split in the Senate with Harris still as the tiebreaker. So nothing has changed. What we discussed a bit earlier about Republicans' ability to block Biden's agenda, at least in the Senate, looks as though it will not be the case, regardless of Georgia's results. What's notable about how the election went when it came to the Senate are a couple of the races in particular, starting with Georgia. I think a lot of people outside of Georgia, observers like you and I, are probably pretty surprised that Herschel Walker did as well as he did versus Raphael Warnock that's driving this runoff election that they're going to be having in December. I'm not surprised. Herschel Walker is the ultimate patriot. He is quoted on video as saying, we, America, are the greatest country in the United States. Doesn't get much more patriotic than that. So he's skilled with truisms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> America is the greatest country in the United States. Guy's clearly a winner. I think the votes for Herschel Walker speak to the issue of abortion pretty highly. He is campaigning as an anti-abortion politician. And even after it came out that he paid for some abortions, his ratings went up even higher because the coalition around making sure there were more anti-choice people in, in the Senate was so strong, like his fundraising went up, et cetera, et cetera. So even if, you know, he has some questionable Yogi Berra-esque logic, the fact that he would be a Republican and the anti-choice when it came to legislation was enough to drive the, the push for his election. And that does speak to abortion being, like we mentioned, the number two concern. So the order of these issues in terms of the importance in people's minds, you can definitely see that play out in various races, depending on which of them candidates decided to make major parts of their platforms. One other Senate race that was particularly notable was in Pennsylvania with John Fetterman versus Mehmet Oz, a.k.a. Dr. Oprah. <laughs> That's right. And a Trump-backed Dr. Oprah. Yeah. 
there were a lot of things that worked against Dr. Oz. One, he wasn't really living in Pennsylvania, nor could he even fake it that well. He seemed to know nothing about most of the things that Pennsylvanians hold sacred. So that that didn't help him too much. And also probably the fact that Oprah came out and endorsed Fetterman. Not great for him either. No, didn't help. Um, John Fetterman was the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania and generally beloved by a lot of people in the state. And his social media manager did a wonderful job eviscerating Dr. Oz throughout the entire campaign. You love to see it. Mm -hmm. I think most of the question there came from the fact that uh, John Fetterman did have a stroke recently, and there were questions about his capacity to serve functionally in office, um, especially after a couple of the debate performances. But um, that did not seem to change the results. And hopefully, you know, his health will hold up and he'll be able to do his job just fine. It's a reminder that politicians are people too, and they're complex and dynamic people. And he seems like he's going to adequately fulfill the role of being a senator, even if he had a health setback. And maybe if he needs help, he can call up Dr. Oz. I would advise against that. (laughs) (laughs) So the bottom line in terms of big picture from the Senate is that Republicans in the Senate won't be able to block the efforts by Biden. It also means that they will not be able to block potential efforts like filling Supreme Court seats, something that happened a few years ago when President Obama attempted to nominate Merrick Garland, had his efforts blocked by Probably my least favorite person. I'm not even going to pretend to be unbiased on this one, Mitch McConnell. And uh, that resulted in us getting Brett Kavanaugh, a Trump nominee, instead. And now, as we talked about in our Supreme Court episode a couple months ago, the bench is decidedly conservative. This isn't to say that every potential judicial nominee that Biden puts forth would be confirmed. But what happened with Merrick Garland was that they wouldn't allow a vote to even happen because it was too close to an election or some other bullshit. So having the control of the committees that put forth the actual vote on nominees is pretty critical considering how many um, federal judicial positions are still open and need to be filled. Mm -hmm. So that's a big impact of the Senate and the Democrats' ability to maintain control over it. Moving to the House, we have a lot more uncertainty, and this is, in a lot of ways, one of the reasons we delayed this episode a bit. Um, Like we mentioned up top, we think we have enough information now to to make this useful, but we do not know who is going to control the House moving forward. The pundits, who, as we all know, amazing at this, still think that the Republicans will flip the House. It seems... Somewhat likely based on what we've seen so far. Prior to the election, the composition of the House was 222 Democrats versus 212 Republicans. At the time of recording, we know now of at least 204 Democrats versus 211 Republicans. That's a lot of seats that are still up in the air, which could easily become Republican seats depending on the last few votes that come in. The Magic number here is 218. By the time this is released, maybe it'll be decided, but Republicans at the moment need seven more. And Democrats, if my math serves me, would need 14 more. So Democrats would have to 
grab twice as many seats as the Republicans need to maintain control of the House. Does that matter? Well, it matters for a few reasons. One, a lot of legislation has to go through the House and the Senate to be signed into law. And if the House votes one way and the Senate votes another, there might not be a lot of laws that get passed. Laws is definitely one. The other interesting power that the House has is the power to investigate. And perhaps the most famous or pertinent investigation going on currently would be the January 6th committee. I just want to let everybody know I was nowhere near the Capitol on January 6th. (laughs) I don't think anybody could possibly think that you would be associated with that person. I just want to make sure (laughs) everyone knows I was nowhere near D.C. (laughs) So that committee could be disbanded by Republicans if they take over the House. They could also, in sort of a very petty, revengey sort of way, they could open up investigations into Hunter Biden, for example. So they could clog up the whole process by investigating the Biden administration or, you know, whoever else they want. Yeah, they're welcome to waste their time on investigating Hunter Biden if they want, I guess. But who cares? Also, Kelly, in Oregon right now, as I'm looking at the front page of CNN, Republicans did just pick up a House seat in Oregon. Probably your fault. So they're at 212 versus 204. Real-time updates from Indubitably. Who was it? Um, Don't make me give full information on something I just (laughs) read. I would have expected there would be names attached to it. It is Lori Chavez de Remer, who is in Oregon's 5th district. Not my district. (laughs) All right, you're off the hook. Another interesting congressional race that I'd like to talk about for a second is in Florida. And this is where Maxwell Frost, who is 25 years old, is going to become the first Gen Z member of Congress. And Gen Z is going to start experiencing what we as millennials experience, which is that people think that we are still children, when clearly (laughs) there are members of Gen Z who are now capable of running for office and winning their elections. And renting a car. Oh, no, you have to be 26, I believe. Oh, okay. Well, we have a member of Congress who cannot rent cars. But what they can do is understand technology, update their views on current economic realities for people under the age of 60, understand current social trends on topics that literally didn't even exist when most of the people in Congress right now were adults. It's been pretty startling how ill-equipped a lot of the legislature has been when handling the issue of emerging technology. It's embarrassing (laughs) the way that they are expected to legislate about these things and clearly have no working understanding. I bet this Maxwell Frost knows even more about the Snapchat than I do. Or the Twitterverse. No, no one knows more about Twitter than I do. (laughs) Fair fair enough. (laughs) For those of you that did listen, to our aforementioned Supreme Court episode, you would have heard that one of my pet peeves for our American government in general is just how old it is and how out of date it can be with the type of topics that it's passing laws about. So for me, while I probably don't trust many 25-year-olds to run a government, the fact that somebody under the age of 90 (laughs) is going to be, you know, in our parliament uh, does give me a bit of hope. 
Yeah, let's wait and see what this kid can do. <laughs> Maybe I'm being a bit too optimistic here. <laughs> but certainly, we're at a point where I think the generation that dominates politics should be getting aged out, considering their lack of touch with the reality that these current generations face in their everyday lives and political and economic and social issues. The Gen Z vote certainly showed up. There have been some assessments of the voting that happened by age group, and it looks like Gen Z showed out so much that they kind of canceled out the 65 and over vote. And that's a big deal for the Republican Party as well. That might be a contributing factor for why this red wave didn't happen. Uh, Republicans being traditionally older, whiter, maler, are going to have to figure out some strategy to start capturing the Gen Z vote. And and to be fair to them, I do think in the last couple of election cycles, we have seen an increase in diversity in GOP candidates. But I, I think that they're going to have to go way further with that than they have been if they want to stay relevant as a party. In addition to how many young people showed up, I guess single women also made it a pretty tough time for Republicans, too. So I'm glad to be doing my part. Mm-hmm. Oregon going red. It's not yet. It's not there. It's not yet. We got a lesbian governor. Speaking of uh, governors <laughs> and lesbians, yeah, uh, the governor race in a lot of states was pretty tight. And although it doesn't have huge implications nationally, certainly for the people living in each of those states, there are going to be ramifications uh, for these races. One of the most noteworthy results of the midterms was that several competitive states, which were borderline with who was going to be the the victor, all but one of them went to Democrats this time, the exception being Nevada. So the states were Arizona, Kansas, Maine, New Mexico, Oregon, and Wisconsin, which all went blue, and then Nevada, which went Republican by a very small margin. Mm -hmm. These are the states that were identified by the BBC as being competitive. So not really sure who was going to pull out the result. And yeah, it does seem like the Democrats did pretty well, including in Oregon, where I know you were concerned that it could potentially go red for the first time. First time that I'm aware of. Yeah, this was a really close election, in part because there was a pretty substantial number of votes that were taken by a third party candidate. A lot of people felt that Betsy Johnson was taking votes away from Tina Kotek, the Democrat. But I'm not actually sure that was the case. I think that there's pretty good likelihood that Christine Drazen, who was the Republican nominee, actually may have suffered more because of Betsy Johnson. If you look at Betsy Johnson's endorsements, overwhelmingly Republican and conservative, a few like moderate newspapers and what have you. So it's unclear as to the actual impact on the overall election that happened. That brings up an interesting point, too. There are so many, virtually all, including our presidency, elections in the United States that are run on a whoever gets the most number of votes wins, which on face value seems, well, that's how democracy works. Whoever gets the most number of votes wins. But considering third party candidates and potential, quote unquote, spoilers, Oftentimes, that's not the most accurate view of the electorate's wishes when you might have candidates splitting votes. So some places, Alaska notably in this election, implemented a rank order voting 
system or a ranked choice voting system? If you've never heard of rank order voting or anything aside from a simple majority, a ranked choice voting system, RCV, is an electoral system in which voters rank candidates by preference on their ballots. If a candidate wins a majority of first preference votes, he or she, it should really be they, is declared the winner. If no candidate wins a majority of first preference votes, the candidate with the fewest first preference votes is eliminated, lifting the second preference choices indicated on those ballots. A new tally is conducted to determine whether any candidate has won a majority of the adjusted votes. The process is repeated until a candidate wins an outright majority. So functionally, what all of this means, let's take your race in Oregon. We're not sure, as you pointed out, whether the third party candidate was making things more difficult for the Republican, more difficult for the Democrat. We would know that if we had a ranked choice voting system where if neither of the main two candidates received 50%, which was not the case, the Democratic candidate received 47.1%, the Republican received 43.5%. If that's the case, the votes for the third party candidate would be eliminated. And then whoever was the second choice for those voters would now receive the votes uh, combined into their tally. And that would give us a real, not speculative, but a real view of who these people would have voted for had they not voted for their first choice. There are a few distinct benefits of ranked choice voting that don't exist in a simple majority. First, it creates more room for there to be multiple parties rather than heavily reliant on a two-party system because multiple parties have a chance at actually showing up and making an impact on the election. But second, and I think that speaks more to the nature of democracy, is that people can really vote for who they want to vote for, not who they feel they have to vote for strategically. Mm -hmm. Let's, Let's take an example just to clarify this that's near and dear to my heart that would show the impact that this could have on a presidential election. In our last primary election on the Democrats' side, let's take Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden. Sanders and Warren are much more similar candidates to each other than either of them are to Joe Biden. Okay, So in a scenario where Sanders and Warren each won 30% of the vote, and Joe Biden won 40% of the vote, Biden would be and was declared the winner and candidate, and eventually president. But considering the socialist leanings of Sanders and Warren, were one of them knocked out, presumably the vast majority of the other 30% would have voted for either Warren or Sanders, whoever was left over. So realistically, one of those two would have gotten 60% of the vote to Biden's 40. So we'd have a very different political landscape right now under a ranked choice voting system than a simple majority system. Knowing what we've heard about the possibilities for that in the United States and how it has worked in a lot of other countries that have a more diverse parliamentary system, I'd say it sounds like a pretty good alternative to what we currently have. That's my digression from the 2022 midterm, but hopefully in the future we could have a more sensible system. So Oregon, we talked about. Congrats, Kelly. You're safe. What about some of the other governor races? Because I think there were a few interesting ones. Definitely. The first one, our favorite, Georgia, where 
mean old Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams. Yeah, she lost again. There's a lot of candidates that have that upfront star power. They're the new shiny thing. And definitely for the Democrats, Stacey Abrams for a while was the new shiny thing, but she seems to have had a hard time staying relevant or impacting politics in a substantial way. And I think that this loss probably eliminates any possibility for her to be a presidential candidate in the future, which was something that would have been talked about in the past. It's hard to say if that's just because she lacks the will of the people, the people who support her ideologies, or if it's just that Georgia is that difficult of an environment for somebody to beat an incumbent Republican governor. Yeah, but moving forward, it's really difficult to win a country if you can't win your own district. I suppose that's true. It's such a bummer. Generally, I I like Stacey Abrams. Another Democratic hopeful that got shellacked uh, was Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who lost to Greg Abbott. I so like Beto O'Rourke. I've given him money, as I've mentioned before, when he was going up against Ted Cruz. Another mean old governor, incumbent Republican, beat somebody who really would have brought a lot of zest into the Democratic Party had they won some high-profile office. These two races are also interesting because they're very different Republican candidates who won. Brian Kemp in Georgia has basically cut ties with Trump and the MAGA branch of the Republican Party and succeeded despite that. Greg Abbott, on the other hand, has moved pretty far right along with his endorsement from Donald Trump and held on to Texas as well. So as much as the Republican Party seems to have an identity crisis that they're going to need to figure out in terms of how they want to move forward and what direction they want to take, currently we do see successes for both personalities of the GOP, particularly played out in these two gubernatorial races. That probably speaks to it being an issues type of vote rather than necessarily a party identity vote for a lot of these people. Ultimately, regardless of which brand of Republican they are, they care about certain things in their platform that voters would not get from a Democrat. Speaking of presidential hopefuls, another interesting governor's race was the one that happened in Florida where Ron DeSantis was victorious. God, I hate that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he is the Republicans, Stacey Abrams or the Republicans, Beto O'Rourke, in terms of being their shiny thing that's expected to run for presidency in 2024, except the difference between he and the Democratic names that we've dropped is he actually won. So he still seems to have a chance. In a sense, except it seems like he's pitted against Trump within the party, which is surprising and probably diminishes his ability to do much on a national stage. Well, we'll see. And that's where this whole identity crisis comes into play. Uh, Republicans are going to have to decide what direction they go. Trump certainly seems scared of this guy and has, before DeSantis has even declared officially he is running for president, Trump has been warning him not to. So we'll we'll see how that plays out and talk about it a little bit later. Because Trump views himself as the Florida candidate, probably, because of Mar-a-Lago. True. <laughs> One definite change from this narrative is that in Pennsylvania, Democrat Josh Shapiro won over Doug Mastriano, who was a very Trumpian election denier and 
That's important on a on a state level when it comes to helping to certify election results to make sure that they actually are certified, for instance. So it's not every Republican winning these contentious elections. Mm. Yeah, speaking of uh, election deniers and to cast this election in a light different than the governor's races where we had a couple of losses for the Democrats, when it comes to secretaries of state, none of the election deniers who are running for office won, which is probably important considering their job is to run the election. Yeah, exactly. This is a pretty good win for democracy in and of itself that election deniers were not given the power to invalidate election results. The candidates were in Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, and Minnesota. These are where we had people who rejected the 2020 presidential results and in some cases had said, were they elected to the secretary of state position currently? Trump would definitely win their state in 2024, seemingly regardless of the votes. Yeah, and that's really scary. And what's more, a lot of the dissent over whether or not the electoral results were valid in 2020 was used as justification for the people who went to D.C. on January 6th and tried to stop the national certification of the election. If all these state Officials are saying that the results are invalid, but the federal government is going to pass it anyway. Well, then there's no choice but to bring a spear into Congress. And a buffalo head and cape. (laughs) Truly one of the stupidest days of my life to observe that. (laughs) Yeah, if it wasn't so scary. Yeah. So what are the overall implications of all of the results we've been discussing? We talked about the Senate. We talked about the House, governorships, secretaries of state. One of the big implications is, of course, as we mentioned, the presidency in 2024. And there were several past presidents and current, but he doesn't really matter, on the campaign trail. Probably the biggest appearance happened in Pennsylvania for the Fetterman-Oz election that we talked about earlier. And this seemed to come down to almost an Obama versus Trump election. Former President Obama, last from the past that he is, joined Joe Biden on several campaign appearances to help advocate for Democratic candidates in this midterm election. The most noteworthy is probably Pennsylvania when they came to the the aid and advocacy of John Fetterman. I thought this was interesting because Obama has largely stepped back from politics since retiring as president. And to me, it would be worrisome to the Democratic Party to think that the current president, Joe Biden, doesn't have enough swing by himself to win an election through endorsements and appearances, and almost like he needs the help of Obama to be effective. Not almost like he does. Or it could also signal that one The party is unified, that current and former leaders are of the same mindset and provide this coalition to support Democratic candidates. Also, having a former president going and campaigning probably allows Biden to keep governing more than he would otherwise, which is ultimately what his job is. I'm a bit more pessimistic about it. He was there also, so he was campaigning instead of doing his job. And At the same time that Obama and Biden were in Pennsylvania, Trump was campaigning on behalf of Dr. Oz. 
So this is a little battleground here going on. And as we reported earlier in the breaking news election coverage of Indubitably Podcast, Fetterman did defeat Oz. So is this a mini victory for Biden alongside Obama over Trump? And does that speak to potentially 2024? Possibly. But I can't help but wonder if there had been a more competitive candidate going against Fetterman, would the results be different? Dr. Oz was probably the worst candidate for that position. If they had gotten just like any old run-of-the-mill Republican who was actually from Pennsylvania, things could have been a lot different. Steve. Steve Republican. (laughs) Well, it wasn't just Dr. Oz, though. The truth of this election is that Trump-backed candidates did not do particularly well. He has a record for choosing and endorsing candidates that have pretty substantial leads or are pretty strongly favored to win already. But in this particular election cycle, in the highest profile contests where he backed candidates over more mainstream Republican options, his picks have struggled. Herschel Walker in Georgia was one of them. Blake Masters lost Arizona. And out of these candidates, only J.D. Vance in Ohio pulled out a clear win, that being by a much more narrow margin than the trending conservative state would have suggested. It does appear that there wasn't much of an effect that Trump was able to create with flipping many districts. He was able to reinforce some that were already in Republican control. But there were even some places in the country that were staunchly MAGA and definitely went Trump in 2016-2020 were borderline for a lot of the candidates. Surprisingly, Lauren Boebert seems to have won re-election, but for a while there, she was trailing by a pretty substantial margin. And this might indicate that Trump is going to have a harder time if he chooses to run in 2024. He's losing a bit of his shine. And that could potentially be because the Republican Party, even the MAGA branch of the Republican Party, is starting to find newer and shinier options. Ron DeSantis being the most obvious one. Do we really think that Trump will run in 2024? Well, we're to give some background. We are recording this episode on November 13th. And Mr. Trump said that he would make a, quote, very big announcement on November 15th. So realistically, when our listeners are hearing this, that announcement will have probably been made. Let's put ourselves on the spot, Kelly. What's the announcement he's going to make? Presidential run? I can't think of what else it could be. And oh my God, I hope I hope it's not. I'm so tired. I can't do another election cycle and per- perhaps another four years with that dude. I think that he might be announcing that he will be returning, not to the White House, but to the Blue Bird, coming back onto Twitter. Bold of you to assume there's still going to be a Twitter in two days. <laughs> we'll we'll find out. So, realistically, the the presumption is that this announcement will be his run for presidency, which is why he's threatening Ron DeSantis. Whether those threats make him look like anything more than a pathetic has been hoping to reinvigorate his career one more time before fading off noisily into the past, um, or whether this guy's going to be president again is yet to be seen. 
Till then, I'm going to live in denial and pretend he is no longer relevant at all in American politics. Mm -hmm. So ramifications for presidential election, number one being who might be the candidates. We have Trump and DeSantis on the Republican side. In our New Year's episode, I made the prediction that Mike Pence would be the nominee. I'm still holding that he'll at least throw his name into the ring. So there's three options for the Republican side. But with the results that Abrams and O'Rourke just had on the Democratic side, and also throwing back to the January episode, my disbelief that Biden would be running again, who are we left with as a Democratic candidate? The best candidates for president in the Democratic Party are also ones that are becoming a little old and perhaps would not be very viable in terms of longevity. But I keep going back to people like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren as being the logical people to rise to the occasion. I'm a big Bernie fan, but I hope he doesn't run just based on my beliefs in terms of age and representation in our government that I already rambled on a bit earlier, don't think Bernie should be the candidate. Warren, after she lost the last time, do you think she could realistically run again? Possibly. I don't think that the American memory of the things that transpired in the 2020 campaign are going to hold for that long. And I honestly would be very in favor of having her take the helm. She hasn't been very vocal over the last two years. One name that you're notably not bringing up would be Harris. Our current vice president should be, theoretically, the obvious choice to take over if Biden doesn't run again. She's a cop. <laughs> is that your opinion or is that something you actually think would matter in terms of her deciding to run or not? I don't know. I don't think she did very well overall when it came to campaigning for the actual presidency. I think the role of vice president just suited her a lot better based on her political and professional background. I guess that's the ultimate thing to have on your resume, though, towards being president is having been vice president. Mm. Unfortunately for her, I think she's been thrown under the bus a few times in this administration, and the administration's not doing a great job in terms of approval ratings anyway. So I agree with you that her name should probably be left off the list. I'll throw one out there for you, though. Somebody who was a rising star, seemed very popular, and didn't just lose a governor's race. Pete Buttigieg, he could make a comeback. He's he's living it up with transportation right now, isn't he? Yeah. So he doesn't have any um, stain on his record at the moment. No losses since the last presidential campaign. People liked him back then. He's got more experience now. With a dearth of options, I wouldn't be surprised if he and Warren are two of the major contenders in 2024 for the Democrats. You know, he's not my favorite, but I don't think I have anything to say against the dude, really. I could see that that might be a viable option. As fun as it is to speculate on future candidates in future elections, those are the elected offices that we were deciding on in this midterm election. But the other half of the election comes in the form of the propositions and we discussed earlier, we had propositions about abortion, slavery, <laughs> weird, but okay, drugs, and gun control. Let's start with the big one, abortion. Yeah, the measures and propositions that came about during this midterm election are actually so interesting. I think a lot of Americans kind of ignore midterm elections. They're not as sexy as presidential elections. 
But the propositions that were on ballots, I think, really drew a lot more public interest than perhaps would have been in the case in a normal midterm election. So the first thing when it came to the abortion laws, and this is kind of in a possible response to the idea that there might be efforts to federally ban abortion, is that in five states, abortion was up for issue in this election as to whether or not it should be a protected right in state constitutions. Voters approved ballot measures in California, Michigan, and Vermont to protect abortion rights in their state constitutions. Amendments that would have further restricted abortion rights in Kentucky and Montana were both rejected. And this is all just the tip of the iceberg. Given the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court this summer, we are going to see, I think, basically every state, whether it is putting forward measures to further restrict abortion rights or to enshrine the right to abortion in their state, I would be surprised if we don't see all 50 states putting forward measures on this issue. This is a continuation of the initial stage where we now have 13 states that ban abortion in most cases and others severely restrict access. A lot of these restrictions or bans altogether were the effect of trigger laws that essentially were established in a lot of these states waiting for Roe to be overturned so they could act very quickly to halt abortions. This issue is interesting because it really shows how interconnected everything in an election is between voting for Senate candidates, congressional candidates who have the ability to block nominations coming from a presidential candidate, and then the subsequent judges who are put into office, their ability to determine law, shape constitutions. Just every facet of this is connected in a way that does have real impacts on people's lives. So sometimes the midterm elections are ignored. They're not as sexy, but there are people out there right now whose lives are being very directly impacted by the results of this very not sexy election. It's why voters such as myself in states where we're pretty solidly going to have Democratic representation in the Senate are so invested in other states like Georgia or what have you is that those senators are elected to serve their constituency, but their presence altogether as a baseline Democratic senator protects me in Oregon in a way that I probably wouldn't have that guaranteed protection otherwise. We're all part of the same organism. Speaking of you living in Oregon yeah. and voting, <laughs> Oregon was voting on whether or not slavery should be legal. Is that right? Oregon wasn't the only state that was voting on this. There were five states, Alabama, Tennessee, Oregon, Vermont, and Louisiana, that were voting on whether or not to remove language from their state constitutions, which permitted the use of slavery as a legal criminal punishment. Mm, I think this is the only time we'll hear Alabama and Louisiana in the same grouping as Oregon and Vermont. Wait for this. Alabama did vote to remove that language. Louisiana was the only state that didn't in this group. So does that mean Louisiana was like, no, we want to keep slavery as a punishment? Yeah, it's very possible that the actual language of what was going to be removed was a little bit confusing for people because not only did it include the word slavery, but also involuntary servitude. 
which could potentially be viewed as what incarceration actually is full stop. So it could have been seen as being a little bit light on the criminal justice scale, maybe. So basically, these amendments were there to clarify language, ensuring that slavery was not codified as an acceptable potential punishment in our criminal justice system. Right. Uh, And I highly recommend that people watch the documentary 13th, which details that penitentiaries are essentially the place where the 13th Amendment doesn't apply. Slavery is outlawed everywhere else. Well, most states still have it on their books in some cases, but that's a whole other issue. But with criminal punishment, there was such a thing as taking prisoners and compelling them to perform unpaid labor. So most states agreed that slavery is bad. Okay. To simplify. What about drugs? How do people feel about drugs? Are drugs bad? Okay. Drugs were a little bit more of a split decision, particularly when it came to marijuana. So again, five states seems to be a trend that five states are all voting on the same sort of idea. Five states were voting on legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Maryland, Arkansas, Missouri, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And only Maryland and Missouri voted it into law, which by the time they go into law in January, will mean that 21 states nationally have legal recreational weed. Almost half. Getting there. So what does this mean for an overall national legalization or at least decriminalization? If we're almost half of the states are legalizing it at a certain point, it just makes sense to make it national? Perhaps. I think that the inevitable conclusion is that we're going to have legal recreational marijuana around the entire country, at least on a state by state basis. And then eventually it should become descheduled by the by the FDA or whatever it is. When that happens, then the actual retailers that are currently state licensed in places like Oregon, California, would be able to use the full banking system. Right now, they can only conduct business in cash because they cannot use like credit systems because it's illegal federally. And this is a process that was started in large part by Colorado. And it seems as though Colorado is on the forefront of drug legalization once again, because Proposition 122 just passed. And what Proposition 122 in Colorado does is create a natural medicine services program for the supervised administration of a really long word that starts with a D, a medium length word that starts with an I, a medium length word that starts with an M. You know that one? Mescaline. You know that one. Ooh, mescaline. Yeah, I know that one. (laughs) That one's mescaline. Excluding peyote, psilocybin, and psilocin. Did I get that right? Or is that just a medium length word that starts with P? I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, So what this does is it creates a framework for regulating the growth, distribution, and sale of such substances to permitted entities. Basically, what all those things mean is shrooms. Shrooms are legal in Colorado. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. It's going to be highly regulated, but it's definitely a lot more accessible than it would be before this went into law. There's increasing theory around the idea of shrooms being good for helping treat psychological ailments and overall that there's not really a major harm to engaging in this type of drug use. I don't know. There's a lot of fancy big words here we can't pronounce and it's a pretty controversial topic since it's only like one state that's even talking about it right now. So I think we should probably bring on someone who knows what they're talking about and maybe do an episode on this. 
I think this would be a great episode. So probably look for that in the future as soon as we can find a guest who can pronounce it. If you happen to be a guest who can pronounce any of those words that I can't, you should get in touch with us. As hard as the last subject was to pronounce, the next one I got. It is a smaller word that starts with a G, and I believe it is pronounced gun. Hmm. Gun control was a another large issue in certain states in this election. An Oregon Measure 114 passed, which is one of the strictest gun control laws that's ever been passed by a state. It requires a permit from law enforcement for people to purchase firearms. Applicants would need to complete safety training and pass a criminal background check. The measure also prohibits magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition. It narrowly passed, and only 90% of precincts were reporting at the time, with 50.8% of the vote. This is a tough one because whether it passed or not, voters don't necessarily have the power to ignore the Constitution. And so this is probably one that's going to be going to potentially the Supreme Court uh, as it faces challenges related to the Second Amendment. Again, just showing how these results are all interlinked between elected officials, appointed justices, and directly voted on measures and propositions. Regardless of what side of the issue you're on, this might be a pretty good test case when it comes to the Supreme Court for either enshrining some gun control or with enshrining the Second Amendment and liberties surrounding gun use. And if you want to hear a bit more about the Second Amendment, we did do an episode on that as well. And we'll see if any of the arguments that we talked about there play out should this Measure 114 make it to the Supreme Court. Calling it right now, it's definitely going to the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, I would not be surprised at all. I'm not going to take a bet against you on that one. So we've covered all of the candidates. We've covered implications. We've covered the measures. At the end of this, Kelly, what's your takeaway from the 2022 super sexy midterm elections? I'm highly encouraged by a lot of what we saw. Obviously, there are several elections and propositions that I wish had gone differently, but I'm encouraged to see that the young vote is leaning more towards the direction that I prefer. And ultimately, we're finding that a lot of people, our generation and generations younger than us, are not becoming more conservative with age, unlike, you know, Generation X or the baby boomers are. I think that speaks to an overall liberal lean in upcoming elections that is only going to grow greater. I'm hopeful. And I hate I hate getting optimistic because I don't like being disappointed, but I think that there's enough evidence here that a little bit of optimism is warranted this time. How about you? My thoughts on this election focus more on the Republican side of things. I would like there to be legitimate choice in our democratic system, and I just don't think that exists right now. And I know that there's a lot of frustration among the Republican Party pointed at Trump, pointed at McConnell, pointed at McCarthy, and asking them to explain, I suppose, why Republicans did so poorly in this election as compared to what had been predicted. And to me, that's hopeful that it might force the party to really finally take a look at themselves and think about how they need to reinvent themselves to stay relevant moving forward. And I do think it's important in our political landscape to have a conservative option that does protect certain values that 
legitimate, reasonable people would find appealing and believe to improve their lives. And I'm not really sure that exists right now, but elections like this, I think, would force us to move in that direction. Um, I think it would be great if we had a system where we had legitimate liberal candidates on one side up against legitimate conservative candidates on the other, and even better, legitimate third-party candidates to where we could have something like a ranked choice voting system that just brings our quote-unquote democratic system a little bit more in line with the actual views and wishes of people. So I don't know. I think we both see this election as a win for different reasons. I don't disagree with the things you're saying, but I think in addition, it has these other benefits as well. Is this, is this an episode where we're both optimistic? That's really out of character for us. I have to ride this high for a few days. <laughs> I'm sure something will happen to ruin it soon enough. Yeah. So I guess the final question of the episode is, which one of us is correct about what Trump is going to be announcing next week? Or today, if you're listening, when the episode dropped. Mm. Well, you said presidential candidacy. Re- realistically, I agree. But I'm willing to stake my claim on his revival on the Twitterverse. Either way, we made a commitment in our anniversary episode to be more active, more relevant on our social media accounts. And I think this is a great episode to do that on considering we are recording it without all of the up-to-date information. We don't know what the result in Georgia is going to be, likely until December. We don't know what the result in the House is going to be completely, although it looks like it's leaning Republican. And we don't know what Trump's announcement is going to be. In the spirit of the conversation that we had previously of using our episodes as a starting point and then continuing to talk about these issues and explore these issues on our social media, I think we would invite you to check those out, Facebook, Twitter, at Indubitably Pod, and see how this all plays out. I look forward to all of you yelling at Josh that he got it so, so wrong. See, you say that as if you would rather have Trump run for president again than get back on Twitter. Look, that's not what I'm saying. So you're saying you hope I'm right. Damn it. (laughs) Victory. For now.